You are listening to the Startup Mindsets Podcast, a podcast dedicated to uncovering how mindsets are built from fascinating startup entrepreneurs, innovation leaders, and investors. This podcast will give you a blueprint to thrive in an innovation-driven and globally connected world. I'm your host, Dan Gonzalez, joined by Earl Valencia. Join us to learn about amazing people and their journeys to discover their own startup mindsets, and in the process, hopefully also discover yours. Here we go. Today we are joined by Ravi Kurani. He is a uh, UCR alumni and currently he's a founder and president of, of Sutro. So happy to have you here, Ravi. Yeah, good to be here. Good to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. Can you tell us a little bit about Sutro? Yeah, yeah. So Sutro at the highest level is a robot that tells you if your water is clean. Um, and our first market is for swimming pools. So if people have a backyard swimming pool, you've gone to a Hyatt, you've gone to a Hilton, um, what we do is we make sure that that water in your pool is clean. Um, and the way that we do that is we have this robot, as I mentioned, that floats inside your swimming pool. It's connected to an application that's on your phone, whether it be Android or iOS. Um, and through that application, we'll basically tell you what you need to do to treat your pool. And so this relationship between measuring water chemistry and telling you how to fix water chemistry is basically what our entire business does. Um, and the goal outside of swimming pools is actually to move into much larger industries, such as agriculture, food and beverage, janitorial sanitation, anywhere that water touches the world is where we want to be. Oh, that's awesome. Um, just curious, where, where exactly, um, if you recall, where'd you get the idea for that? And I know that um, it's you know, just do, doing my independent like research and all, um, that uh, you had a big gravitation towards like the problem of not having clean water. You know, you worked in the spa industry, I you know, sort of read. Uh, what kind of alerted you to that uh, problem in the, in the world? Yeah, um, so actually it first hit me when I was working in India with, um, with actually Village Capital. And we were basically working through the due diligence process. We had a small fund, a test fund that we had basically launched in India. And going through due diligence, we understood, um, and what kind of hit me was that people were building technology around water filtration, right? Everybody was trying to fix water. Of like, hey, your water is dirty, let's go ahead and clean it. But they were doing that with kind of a very, a very jackhammer approach, right? They were trying to do a one size fits all, let's just make the best filter in the world, and we may not need all of these things to be filtered. Um, so what I started kind of looking into is what does the sensing look like, right? If you understand, what the problems with water are, then you can basically zoom into those particular issues and you can solve those from a, from a water filtration, a chemical issue, a fixing issue. And so that's kind of where the first idea for Sutro came about is, is basically trying to develop the sensor. We had built a prototype in India. Um, probably the stupidest thing a startup can do is try to sell to the Indian government, which is obviously <laughs> a pretty big undertaking. Um, so we kind of came back to California, San Francisco, um, my dad used to have a chain of pool and spa supply stores in Southern California. And so um, through kind of doing that, we were able to break into the swimming pool market. And, you know, swimming pools are a lot more different of a business model to sell to than to selling to the Indian government. And so that's the kind of, that's the kind of genesis of Sutro. No, that's good. So I guess, uh, wondering like what, what experience you had, I guess you'd love to hear more about like your career that kind of prepared you to, you know, build this company, right? Um, I think the, the audience would love to know 
you know, how, how did someone even get to have the expertise to launch a robot for water? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think if I, if I look at the, if I look at the soup, right, the Ravi, like all the ingredients that go into Ravi, um, what kind of drove me to where I am today, um, kind of starting from the beginning, right. Was I'm a, my dad's, my dad's an immigrant coming here from India. My, my, my parents are my mom and dad. Um, and so I grew up in an immigrant household living, you know, in kind of suburban United States. And so that's kind of the first, first bit of going to school, you know, seeing and living American life, but then coming home and obviously being very traditionally Indian. Um, and then on top of that, you know, visiting, visiting India on a kind of yearly basis because we still have family there. And so seeing the kind of discrepancies in the governmental system and how much poverty is there and how much homelessness is there, given kind of what we see in the U.S., you know, growing up in the 80s and 90s, um, that obviously takes a toll on you, right? And then I think secondarily with my, with my father being an immigrant and having a, you know, his own business in, in the United States, I learned the kind of grit that it takes for somebody to actually grow up, build a franchise, build a business in the United States, and then actually grow that from kind of zero to 100. Um, and then throughout, I think, undergrad, I could started to travel a lot more. Um, and I think seeing just different parts of the world and seeing what's actually out there. We went to Brazil. We did a project in Peru, um, the work that I did in India. I think all of those things combined and kind of give you that, like, world side of the soup, right? And I think on the other side, uh, my background from UC Riverside is actually in mechanical engineering. So that's where the, that's where the robot side comes in. Um, mm. I was able to, I actually minored in, in, in fluidics and kind of aeronautical systems. So I had my first job at NASA for a year. Um, and so running through that entire gamut, you ended up having the ingredients for what make me. That's super cool. Yeah. I think that Earl, did you work for NASA too? Or you wanted to, right? Like back in the... Yeah, that was my gym. I ended up working for Raytheon uh, on uh, kind of the defense side of space. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, always cool to... Uh, you know, to, to meet people who are, you know, worked in NASA. So, yeah, my co-founder also was from uh, uh, NASA Ames uh, before he went to Google. So That's um, cool. Yeah, I was, I was part of cool. NASA JPL. So we were doing research. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In LA. That's awesome. Yeah. That's, uh, we did research where on the Mars jet, rover was. Jet engine technology. Yeah, that's what, that's what my project was on. Cool. Oh, but with that... If I recall, like, is that the UCR's, um, is that the senior design or is that, I forget what it was called. I had a bunch of friends in the engineering. No, this was, this was a completely separate project at JPL. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Yeah. And I guess just going on top of that, um, I went to UCR too. I'm just curious. You went there maybe like in the early, in the late, late 20, <laughs> before the 2010 year. So maybe that'd, that'd be my guess. Right. So like before like Silicon Valley became super famous or super like the thing um where did you kind of get your um your entrepreneurial i guess uh mindset or like sort of that you wanted to start a company but then maybe you you don't necessarily know that uh, it requires raising money or like all these things that uh uh you, you don't know when you just have an idea like where did you get that uh or how did you how did you go through that process of just being young and with the company or sort of yeah i mean i, I think i touched upon this um in kind of what i said previously is my my father um 
as an immigrant came here and basically opened up a franchise of pool and spa supply stores in Southern California, right? So um, I think I can probably directly attribute my influence to literally working working high school summers in the pool store, right? Seeing my dad oh, nice. get up every, every day at 5 a.m. and mm-hmm. go and get the guys up and running and make sure that they were all running their service calls to clean the pools and, you know, change the filters and change the pumps. Um, you know, everything down to at a very young age, if, if your dad's sick, you know, you run the pool store with your mom and, you know, I'm sitting there behind the counter, um, telling people what type of chlorine to put in their pool or what type of acid to, to buy, or, you know, running chemistry tests in the back, um, from everything to selling, you know, three to $5,000 heavy equipment sets. Um, and so I think if I can pinpoint, you know, where, where, or where on the spectrum I got that influence from, um, and what kind of, you know, preempted me to have that, to have that grit to just see somebody continue on, um, was probably just watching my dad and kind of being in the mix with my dad while I was doing this or while he was doing this rather. For sure. Yeah. That's seriously amazing. Um, you guys are part of the Berkeley Skydeck Accelerator. Or is that how the first, was it one of the first batches or they, they're, they're the first people to fund you? Uh, actually the first, uh, one of our first investors was Bolt. Um, the Bolt, what was back then the Bolt Hardware Fund. Um, started in Boston. So we lived in Boston for six months as we first adopted technology. And then um, Ben Einstein and Axel Bichara, um, the two partners at the time of Bolt, opened up the San Francisco office. So we were actually one of the first companies in San Francisco for the Bolt Fund um, out of the Autodesk Pier 9 facility, which was super awesome working out of Autodesk at that, at that time. That's really cool, yeah. Robbie, what, what kind of approaches did you have uh, when you were fundraising, um, just since, you know, that's always a challenge for some entrepreneurs, right? And that's kind of where they, it could be a breaking point, a tipping point. Yeah. I mean, just how did you, you know, approach that whole, the whole fundraising thing? And yeah, just what do you think about that? Yeah. I think when you, when you look at fundraising, you have to, you have to be mindful. Uh, let me, let me, let me explain it this way. You have to think of everybody that you kind of approach in your business as a potential stakeholder, right? If you, if you draw Sutro, for example, in the center of the circle, um, your, your investors are a stakeholder, right? You are, you are your own stakeholder in the company. Your employees are stakeholders in the company. Your customers are stakeholders in the company. And when each of these stakeholders look at what is Sutro, what is your business, um, they will have in a sense, a particular transaction that they're expecting out of it, right? A customer will give us money and out of the cash that they pay us, they're expecting a service, right? They're expecting the robot to work. They're expecting the application mm-hmm. to work. The employees expect something, right? They expect to be in a place that is going to nurture them. They're going to they're gonna expect to be in a place that they can come into work and feel comfortable. Um, they want to be challenged in what they're doing, right? So that's the employee stakeholder mindset. For the investor, it's very similar. And so if you look at, any one of these people that end up touching your business, you have to make sure that you properly figure out who that stakeholder is and then figure out the relationship that that stakeholder has with your business. So to your question of, you know, raising money is hard or talking to investors is tough. Um, many of the entrepreneurs that I talk to now that are, that are kind of starting up seem to have this issue because they think of everybody as a separate kind of box that they're trying to navigate. Right. But if you, 
build this sort of infrastructure where the company is the central organism that's basically interacting with all these stakeholders, you start to understand that the investors want one thing, right? The investors are going to give you cash for equity. And in the very simplest explanation of that formula, the equity should mean something, right? And so the question is, how do you increase shareholder value? How do you increase investor value? Um, and so when you're pitching that, right, you want to make sure that you have an idea that makes sense. You want to make sure that the idea is fundable. You want to make sure that the idea over the span of time can increase exponentially to make sure that you hit investor returns, right? So a good way of actually looking at talking to any, any investor is study the fund, right? Study the fund that they've raised. Figure out what they want to invest in. Um, figure out what age of the fund is, right? Usually funds are raised generally in about 10-year cycles. Are they at the end of their fund? Are they at the beginning of the fund? If they're, the, if they're at the beginning of the fund, they're probably taking on new investments. If they're at the end of the fund, they may have capital reserved for businesses they've already invested in to kind of double down on, right? So all of these factors will take place in the same way that you, you know, put Facebook ads to advertise to your customers because you know what that core demographic is you will also have a core demographic that's interested in investing in your business. And so I would, I would, you know, tell any entrepreneur to think of it that way versus just thinking that the investor is this like big hairy beast that they need to kind of tackle as this big monster. So. For sure. Yeah. Um, that's a great response. Um, yeah. I was wondering, Oh, do you have a question? Earl? No, no, no. I think uh, just a reaction to that. And it's something that I also kind of learned in this, this past six months, right? Like, you know, uh, investors are also motivated by many different things, right? So some of them are motivated by, you know, I get impact, right? Or some of them are motivated purely on returns. In fact, we had some investors who say, you know what, I, I don't really believe in the business, right? But uh, I think it could be big, right? So I was like, okay, interesting. And then there are also some investors that, you know, are very thesis driven and maybe something even relates to their own personal experience, right? So um, I think one thing that, you know, I've learned too, and I think Ravi, you hit on it where, you know, not all investors is the right investor for you. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that is a, a shift that I think most entrepreneurs have a hard time going to because, you know, obviously if you get like a hundred rejections, you just get demoralized. But if you just know that it's better to have a hundred rejections of investors that don't believe in you and get like two or three investors that actually really want to make you succeed. Right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. A hundred percent. And I think, that same that same narrative you know goes towards marketing as well right people yes people always have this question of like well who is who is your business segment who is your market and everybody's like well i want to sell to everybody right but everybody's not going to buy your product and so there is there is a right base of there is your early evangelist customers there is your first users that are going to buy and build your product with you in the very early stages right and that's very different to what you might get a year, two year, three year, four years down the line once you have an established business. Gotcha. Yeah. I guess the next question I have is how did you, I guess, find your, your co-founders and uh, maybe if you have a story too, like did they find you or did you um, go out to them? Yeah. I think the, the safest way that I found founding, finding co-founders is probably working with your friends. Um, because if, if you think about it, right, you, you, you go into your job on a regular job from nine to five, right? Let's, let's, let's give or take. And when you're at your nine to five, you're spending 50%, 70% of your day, you know, outside of breakfast and dinner. 
with with your with your employees, with your with your coworkers, with your colleagues. So the so the general work life percentage, right? If you have let's say twelve hours in the day, whatever it is, um, your nine to five is a big chunk of that day. When you work at a startup, that nine to five is not nine to five, right? You're working from six a.m. to like ten p.m. So if you're going to double down and spend more time with somebody, you probably want to be comfortable with them, right? And so they have, you know, founder dating and all this sort of stuff that you can like try to find people by, you know, meeting them. But honestly, if you're, if you're friends with somebody, if you've kind of known them for four to five years and you've gone through the trials and tribulations of being a friend with them, <laughs> um, again, I think it's very different when you're in business because you're talking about money and you're talking about fundraising. There's going to be a lot more problems. Um, but you probably want to go into the worst part about knowing somebody where you're going to be dealing with money and all the nasty things and all the messy stuff that could, you know, potentially ruin a friendship by having the friendship behind you, right? Because going into all that stuff with somebody new, um, might even be more problematic. Um, now I know there's another, you know, theory out there, another form of thought that says, well, keep your friends, your friends and go with, you know, the outside person because they're going to be better at dealing with money and, you know, the investors and all that. And maybe that's true. It's just, you don't know what cobs webs they could be hiding in their closet um, that may come out later. Right. And so that's just the, that's just the biggest piece there. For sure. Um, yeah, that's a great response. Um, you know, we're at Sutro today and uh, maybe you could, if you have like a story or two or um, like a favorite moment within the company, um, what, what's that journey been like, you know, from, the early days to the middle to, to now, I mean, um, you guys got, uh, was it bought out, right? Or private equity? Something, something. Yep. We did. We did get acquired. Yep. Cool. Uh, congrats too. Yeah. Um, what was that? Uh, maybe, maybe if you could talk about like what, how, what was that like, you know, selling or getting, getting bought out and going through that? Yeah. I mean, I think if I'm going to kind of highlight, you know, two or three moments in Sutro that I can think of over the last five years, um, most recently, we, we actually just launched about two weeks ago. So everything that goes into negotiating with a Chinese contract manufacturer all the way to figuring out your quality assurance and quality control processes, right? There's over 350 unique components inside the Sutra robot. Every single one of those need to be looked at in some form or way, right? You you have these things such as, such as critical... Um, critical pieces, right? The, the microfluidic chip that we, that we use in our chemistry is a very important portion of the robot. That microfluidic chip has to be checked 100%. Everything down to the plastic housing on the outside needs to be checked to a certain percentage. Uh, how do you figure that out, right? That was, that was the fun part of like, you study mechanical engineering, you know, you go through UCR, you know how to like look at CAD drawings and you can like design this stuff. But when you, when you put pen to paper, and you start making 10,000 units, that's very different than getting a few things prototyped, right? So I, I would say that that is like one sphere that was really, really exciting of like going from A to Z on that. And then legitimately, how do you, how do you get cargo from China to the US, right? There's a bill of lading. You have to book ships. There's freight forwarders. There's lithium ion certifications, right? I'm not going to go into like the nitty gritty of all this, but there's like, it's, it's really interesting when you start looking at that entire process. Um, I think the second kind of really interesting moment for me was just seeing the team do this, right? Having, having an idea in your head and then 
putting that pen to paper and then seeing it get printed in a book, right? It's really cool to hold that book and read the story, right? From, 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 from just the idea to like something that's physical, it's really rewarding to see that. And then it's really rewarding to see your, your, your teammates, right? Everybody from the electrical engineers to the software developers to like the decision that we were making on the color scheme and, the, and, and like the design guidelines, um, everybody had a play there, right? And seeing everybody's input um, was, also, was also super rewarding. Um, and I think lastly, you can put the pen to paper, you can write the book, you can hold the book in your hand, but when you give the book to somebody else to read and they finish and they flip that last page and they're like, man, this was a really, really good read, that, that's the coolest part, right? So selling the product to the customer, getting it from China over here, shipping it to an end user, having them put it inside their water and then say, dang, this is like a really cool product. I don't know, I don't know how I lived without this before. No. Like that, that's when you mm. think your, 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 your idea has been validated. And so I, I think those three, three spheres kind of really stick out in my head over, over Sutro's journey. Great, yeah. Uh, you know, mm. our previous guest, Ron, I asked him um, about hardware being hard. Was, uh, can you, is it always hard? Like, would you say that if you just, I mean, if you decide, decided to do another start, like if you did something without hardware, that um, it would have been- Yeah, hardware, I mean, hardware is hard, right? So, and, and when you say that, you have to understand that it's built upon layers of complexity, right? So I think building, building any business is probably hard. I mean, it, it, it is hard. I'm not gonna say it's probably hard, it's very hard. Building any business or any startup is hard. Um, Everything from, you know, in, in Oakland, the barbershop down the street to the Vietnamese restaurant to Sutro robotic device to, you know, a wear hardware product. Um, it's all hard because at, at the end of the day, you have an idea and you're trying to get somebody to buy it, right? That's, that's, that's the end goal is how do you make that shift from A to Z? If I have this thing in my head, I have this barbershop idea, I have the best Vietnamese restaurant idea. How do I know that my Vietnamese imperial rolls are going to be the best for anybody to buy and people want yeah. to come into my Vietnamese shop and buy this pho, right? Like your pho might be really bad. You might not make a good noodle soup. And so people don't want to buy it, right? So you're continuously iterating, you're continuously building this product. And so it is tough, right? Building any business is tough. Building hardware is hard because if you look at the traditional Silicon Valley space, right, the venture capital space, we primarily fund software companies, right? We build applications, we build machine learning, data science. Um, we build software products. We, we, we interact with them on our screens most of the time. Hardware is hard because there's another thing you need to build on top of that building that thing that also sits on the screen. And so that's why it's hard because you're doing two things at once given this paradigm of investing typically in software. And on top of that, you have more failure modes, right? Hardware can break. Um, lead times are longer. If, if, if hardware and plastic breaks, it physically takes time to run a machine to pump out another batch of plastic. With your software, um, it takes time, but you can also work overtime, right? You can also make changes to code, and that can be established across the board. If you've broken those, you know, Apple AirPods that you're, waking, that you're, that you're wearing, I have to get you new AirPods. That means I have to make them. I have to cut the plastic, I have to assemble them, I have to get them from China to over here, I have to get them to a logistics facility, and I have to get them to your house safely so that you can then reinstall them and wear them on your ears. Right? Whereas if your app is broken, 
I could get a team to work 24-7, come, you know, crank out some code and get that, get that update across the board. Mm-hmm. And so I think scalability is a very different question around software versus hardware. Gotcha. Yeah, and I think just going into the, um, the buyout process for you, like most startups, they, they or I mean, I guess that, that exit of uh, getting acquired, right, just getting bought is um, a tough decision. Uh, maybe if you could share like what went through your mind when you were considering that and uh, how did it feel like to, to actually eventually do like get bought out sell your company? Yeah. I mean, it's a different, you know, I think it's, I think it's all what I'm going to say is part of the journey. Um, I say that, I say that very lightly in the sense that there is, there's obviously a lot that goes behind, um, you know, getting a company acquired, all the paperwork that goes behind it, all like the legalese, um, outside of that, you know, you can get deeper and say, how do you, you know, you started this business and now all of a sudden it's going to get taken over by somebody else. Um, back to my discussion around stakeholders with your employees, with your investors, with your customers, um, a strategic investor, you know, a person, you know, or, or an organization that buys you out is also part of that world. Um, and so when you look at your objectives as a business and what you want to do, um, you take that in mind alongside the same weight as your employees, as your customers, as the future of what you want to build for your company. Um, and so at a, at a, at a very high level, right? If running a startup is tough because your main goal is to get optionality, right? You want optionality to getting more capital. You want optionality to getting more people to help you work on a particular product. Um, you want optionality to customers and markets. And so, Again, I think, you know, these, these conversations of thinking about investors as like a separate being or a buyout as a separate being, I think it's all part of the same book, right? And so like as you're crafting that story, as you're trying to build the future of your company, you need to consider and think about them in that same vein. Um, and as you grow stakeholders, as you grow complexity in your, build, in your business, as you need more optionality, you just you just throw them in the kind of ring of, you know, do we have enough capital? Do we need capital? Is this business going to survive without this buyer? Sure. Um, is our, our, our employees going to be well, you know, well kept? Um, can we pay off our investors? Right. All of these questions have to go through your head. Yeah. Um, and, and as a business owner, you are also a fiduciary, right? You're also legally responsible to maximize shareholder profit. Right. Um, and so all of those things combined, you know, you throw everything up on a board and you make, you make the wisest decision. So, um, with the with the with the most amount of data you have, by not wasting too much time. Well, I think that's really good, Rabbi. I think uh, you know you're you're in a definitely a unique spot where you you came up with an idea uh, and then and you have all these stakeholders aligning for you to then scale the business, right? Um, even so much so that someone wanted to take you over and help you scale, right? So that's uh, that's really amazing. Uh, one thing that we did, do here I guess in this uh, podcast and obviously we're going to use this also for the book is you know if you had to you know say at least a, a statement or a, or a paragraph of what your personal startup mindset is um, that you've grew throughout your entire life right from uh, you know uh, an immigrant uh, kind of family to building a business and running the shop until you know working in NASA and working all over the world to now you know being a startup founder that you know got acquired you know, how, if, if you had to like quantify that or say, let's say a statement of what your personal mindset is, you know, uh, in starting companies, what would that be? I would say it's, uh, it's grit. 
would be like the one word that I would define it by. And by, by grit, I mean perseverance, right? Just don't, don't give up because there is going to be an option if you, if you look, if you look hard enough. Great. Um, you know, I guess we, I know you mentioned a little bit already about your childhood. I mean, when, when did you harness that grit inside of you or that perseverance? I mean, is there a specific time that you could share to us and obviously the audience that that thing really got kind of, you know, sparked inside of you? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think it's probably back to working at the pool store, right? Seeing my dad go from one pool store to 30 pool stores in, in Southern California, that takes grit. And so I think seeing it and living within it in kind of my, you know, and within my father's shadow, I don't think there was a point at which I started harnessing it, but I think as you grow up in it, you see it and then you just start to emulate it. Um, and so it's kind of probably been a very gradual process across the spectrum. But um, that's like the first time that I really remember, you know, physically seeing that happen. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, Ravi, one, one or two more questions here um, before we let you go. Uh, so we, we normally have been asking our guests, uh, what has been a book or um, sort of maybe where do they find their inspiration? Um, <laughs> what's, what's, what's like a book or uh, maybe a blog or something that you've read that, uh, that that's helped you out along the way or a resource or something like that? Um, I would read or reread Harry Potter. Okay. Um, you read all the books? Okay. Read, okay. Okay. Books. Harry yeah, Potter. That's awesome. Okay. Cool. Yeah, and, I've, and, I've, and I've actually reread them recently as of like three years ago or something like that. Um, I say that for two reasons. The first is because JK Rowling is an amazing storyteller and back to you being a founder and, you know, working within a startup um, and having all these stakeholders, you're doing nothing but storytelling. Right. And so your storytelling to your investors, humans, humans are creatures that love stories. And so if you can understand and, and capture the art of storytelling, um, you can probably best convince your employees, you know, you can work with your customers, you can work with your investors, your stakeholders, um, you're crafting a story. Um, the second piece is because it's just a really interesting story, right? I think the story of Harry and, and, and his grit and like the stuff that he has to go through um, J.K. Rowling had done, you know, has done an, an incredible job of explaining that. And so that's, that's, that's what I would recommend. That's my inspiration. Cool. And then Ravi, you know, we, we typically have these favorite questions, which is my last questions for you. If you had to give advice to your, you know, 20 year old self, just the, uh, the person coming out of UCR on how he can personally develop his own startup mindset, what would you tell him? I would tell him to not sweat the small things because you know in the very beginning <laughs> you're kind of always you're always like worried about everything all the time at kind of a hundred percent capacity um and the second thing i tell them is you know i'm from the future and things work out okay so uh just keep doing what you're doing nice <laughs> ben any final final question no well maybe one or two i don't know this yeah, I'm really curious today. Um, so, so how is how is Sutro doing now? I mean, in terms of, 
I guess like how's the health of the company, right? Since it's like 2020 and it's been five, more than five years or so since uh, creation. Um, what, what's it feel like to be, I guess, a successful founder, man? <laughs> Uh, it's great. I wouldn't. I wouldn't label myself as a successful founder yet. I don't think I'm. I don't think we've you know sold enough units or been out there. But um, the health of the company is doing great. We, as I mentioned, launched um, two weeks ago, and so you know we're seeing products get out of people's hands. We've been doing you know a very rigorous beta test. Um, our our strategic company that's that's behind us is. You know, it's it's great to work with them. Honestly, I really I really appreciate their their mindset, the kind of the way that they they view the market and the way that they view Sutro. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there's there's a long road ahead of us. I don't think we're done yet, but um, it's good to be where we're at, and we're not you know we're not going anywhere anytime soon. It's it's, it's good to know that. Do you guys sell to like gyms or like who are some of the users, like just random people with, well, anyone with a pool or? Backyard pool owners, yeah. People in Los Angeles, Phoenix, Texas, Florida, um, California. Is there a difference between indoor pools? Uh, I mean, no, it doesn't change the water chemistry any, but uh, yeah, backyard swimming pool owners. And how can, maybe how can a normal person find out about where they can buy your uh, product? Yeah, just go to mysutro.com, M-Y-S-U-T-R-O.com, and there's a buy button at the top right. Just click that, and we'll have it shipped and delivered to your house in about five days. Sweet, yeah. I think that's about all we had for you today, and thanks for hopping on. Yeah, perfect. Thanks, guys. Just want to say thank you so much to the listeners of the Startup Mindsets podcast. This is your host, Dan. And yeah, if you guys would like to hear more, subscribe to us on Apple or Spotify or any of the services that um, you're listening, listening to us on. And uh, yeah, more to come from us. We just launched our website and we're going to be launching our Instagram pretty, pretty soon. Check out our website at startupmindsets.com and uh, follow us at the Startup Mindsets on LinkedIn or Instagram. So yeah, thanks again.